One of my least favorite questions in life, I have a number of least favorite questions, I'm sure you do as well, but one of my least favorite questions in life is this one. Are you guys ready to order yet? <laughs> when that happens, and I don't care if it's a waiter or a waitress, I feel an unusual amount of stress. And the reason is simple. I like food, but I don't like to order the wrong food. And the way that I make decisions, and those of you who've worked with me or been around here for a while will know this to be true, it's not, no, no surprise, is the way that I make decisions is I like to evaluate options, like to research the dynamics, like to figure out what the best option is, ask advice of people, and then I will make a decision. But without all of that data, it's very uncomfortable for me to make a decision. That's why no matter where I go, I always order fajitas. <laughs> so I just, I just I want to stick with the same dish because every once in a while, I'll kind of wander out into some other dish only to be disappointed. I just don't like having to make a split-second decision. Here's another example. Uh, this last summer, because of where our boys were all, sort of all over the country with internships and life and everything else, we had way too many cars under management, if you know what I mean. And, and we're getting to the end of the summer, and I was like, you know what, we, gotta, we have too many cars, we got to get rid of one. But I couldn't decide what car to get rid of. So I kept asking my wife, which one should we get rid of? She goes, this one, that one, so this one. She's like, I don't know. I'm like, I don't know. What do you think with this one? And after a while, just quite frankly, I was wearing her out. She was tired of me talking about this because I just couldn't figure out which car to get rid of. Well, the morning of my son's wedding, wedding rehearsal, excuse me, I was traveling with my dad. We were going to go golfing together, have this kind of good father-son moment. And I'm crossing an intersection near Brownsburg, and someone pulled out in front of me, made a left turn, and hit me head on. We're going not too fast, but the car was totaled. I called my wife and said, hey, I don't know how to tell you this, but I've been in an accident, everyone's okay, but I need you to come. So she came and arrived on scene, took our bags out of our vehicle. We moved all the other vehicles that was gonna be towed. My wife, Sarah, checked on me. She said, hey, you all right? And I said, yeah, I'm fine, just kind of disappointed. And she said, well. <laughs> she said, actually, the decision just got a lot easier. And I said, I guess you're right. That's one way to make a decision. So I just, I hate making decisions when things aren't clear. I'd rather just have some time to think them through. It's one thing when it relates to food or vehicles. But do you know the decisions that you make regarding the care of your soul are really important? In other words, the decisions that you make regarding your spiritual life not only affect you now, but those decisions have eternal consequences. What's more, you can't kind of sit in the middle of a decision when it comes to Jesus. You're either for him or against him. There's no middle ground. You may think, well, I'm just going to decide not to decide. And in deciding not to decide, you end up deciding. We're in the middle of a series on the Gospel of John. We're in week four of nine weeks, looking at just the first 18 verses. And the aim of this Gospel is according to John, that you might believe. He says, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that, that by believing you may have life in his name. So believing is the theme, but you need to know there's a dark side. There's an opposite of belief, which is to reject Jesus. So part of the reason why John writes is not just so that you might believe, but also for this purpose, that you may not reject Jesus. This morning what we're going to do is we're going to unpack this rejection of Jesus. 
somebody this week asked me, why did you stop in verse 11? Why didn't you go on to verse 12, to like the good news? And we'll highlight the good news of the gospel today, but here's the reason why. Because we always go to verse 12. And I want us to live in, to sit in, and to feel the weight of what it means to reject Jesus. If you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I hope that this message helps you evaluate kind of what side of the line you are on as it relates to Jesus. If you're already a follower of Jesus, that you'll just be reminded what it means that you decided to follow Jesus. Our text highlights the need to decide what will you do with Jesus. Jesus comes to save, and yet he is rejected. So what we're going to do is look at first the posture of Jesus. What's his essence, what's his attitude, how does he act, and then secondly, what is the problem of the world? So posture of Jesus, problem of the world, that'll serve as our outline today. So first here, the posture of Jesus. John has spent the first eight verses trying to help us understand who Jesus is. He talks about him being the Word, Word was with God, Word was God, talking about the essence of who Jesus is. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. John wants you to know who Jesus is. Now, in verses 9 to 11, we're seeing a shift. He's taking this idea of who Jesus is, but he's now applying it to what Jesus does and the way in which he comes into the world. We see a number of things about who Jesus is as it relates to his posture, his essence. First, the text tells us that Jesus is ultimate. It says in verse nine, the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So first you see this true light. That's what I mean by ultimate. By true, John doesn't necessarily mean that which is not false, although that would be true. <laughs> That's kind of funny the way I said that. Um, so sometimes I enjoy my own sermons that I just did there. So um, what John is saying is not that what Jesus says is in fact right or the fact that is true, He's saying instead that among all of the things, Jesus is the ultimate thing. Now, throughout the New Testament, we find that Jesus is described as the one who speaks the truth. So he calls himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He speaks what is right. That's important because there are all kinds of untrue narratives that are out there in the world. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 calls the devil the angel of light. So I trust that you know all week long you've been fed lies that felt true but weren't. All week long the devil throws things at you to try and convince you to kind of go his direction. And this next week you'll face the same battle. It's the same sort of struggle that happened in the Garden of Eden between Adam and Eve. The enemy threw what were false statements wrapped in what seemed to be true, or even how he tempted Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew chapter four. So Jesus not only says what is right, he not only does what is right, but he is what is right. So John's idea is this. In the midst of all of the things that could be true and could be the case, Jesus is the ultimate expression of what God is like. Jesus talks about manna from heaven in John chapter 6, for example. It says that the Father gives true bread from heaven. 
And this true bread, so in the midst of all of the manna, in the midst of all of the bread, there's this true bread, not like false bread, but true bread, like the essence of what true bread really is. And he says, he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, that's Jesus. He is the ultimate expression of God's deliverance. That's what he means by true light. Another example, in John 15, Jesus calls himself the true vine. Israel thought of itself as God's vine, and when Jesus calls himself the true vine, he's saying he's the ultimate expression of God's people. He's the true expression of the true Israel. So Jesus is the true manna, the true vine. He's the light of the world. He's the true light. He's the way, the truth, the life. In other words, Jesus is the ultimate and genuine manifestation and revelation of what God is like. So when you read the Bible and you see what Jesus does and you hear what Jesus says, you need to sit up and listen because he is the very display of the very heart of God. I was reading in my devotions this week and I came to the account where Jesus is with the disciples in the upper room and he says that one of you will betray me. And I found myself just moved emotionally at this scene where John, the apostle, is leaning on Jesus' chest and he asks him, Lord, who will betray you? And Jesus says, it is the one to whom I give this piece of bread. He dips the, the bread in the wine and then he gives it to Judas and one commentator suggested, and I just hadn't thought of this, that Judas was sitting on his left and he dipped it and handed it to Judas. So here is his betrayer, who he knows is about to go out and set in motion his own crucifixion, and yet he has him seated at his left. It's remarkable. And I found myself just marveling at the actions of Jesus. So when you read the Bible, read it through that lens to realize that Jesus is ultimate to realize that our engagement with him is what this book is all about. Friends, the glory of heaven will be we will see Jesus in all of his glory. He is the true light. Secondly, the text tells us that Jesus' posture is unavoidable. He says, this light, this true light, which gives light to everyone. Now at first you might think, well, he's referring in some way to salvation, like he gives salvation or he reveals salvation to everyone. That's, that's not what, what John means. He doesn't have sort of the idea that Paul had in mind in Romans chapter one about general revelation. That's not what I think John intends here. Instead, what he has in mind is that when Jesus comes into the world, he shines on everyone and he creates a line of demarcation. He shines on everyone such that everyone has to deal with who Jesus is. Look at John chapter 3 and verse 19. Grab your Bible, flip over there and see it. When Jesus shines on mankind, it requires a response. Verse 19 says this, and this is the judgment, the light, namely Jesus, has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. 
So what, John is, what Jesus is saying there, what John records in John chapter 3, is that when Jesus comes into the world, there is a dividing line, which means that every single person has to deal with Jesus. He can't be ignored because to ignore him is in, to, in effect, reject him. Every person must decide who is Jesus. Every single person who hears this message, every single person listening, every single one of you have to decide who Jesus is. And if your attitude is, you know what, I don't want to deal with that, you have already decided. He's not one that you can have some sort of middle of the road, kind of on the fence, I don't know what to do with him. He is king or he is not. He is Lord or he is not. There is no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. That's the point. When the light shines, it shines on everyone. C.S. Lewis famously said this in his book, Mere Christianity, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the foolish thing that people often say about him, namely Jesus. They say this, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who, merely, who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. That's the dividing line. So friends, we're gonna see this play out in the Gospel of John, and I hope that you'll stay with us through our journey, that when the light shines, it creates a decision point. And that decision point often creates tension. Some of you know what this is like for real in your family. You're a follower of Jesus, but other people in your family are not. And there is a barrier that exists. Oh, is there a barrier? You know the tension. Or when you have a coworker at work and you start to talk about spiritual things, and immediately there's this like awkward pushback. And some of you think that that awkward pushback or that sort of moment is abnormal. It's not. It's exactly part and parcel of what it meant that Jesus came into the world. So that I would encourage you not to be unkind or inconsiderate, but rather to realize that when the light shines... It creates a dividing point. Some of you, I hope that this message will actually f spur you on to pray more deeply, even this, this next week, for family members who are not yet converted. Maybe you're here today, you're not yet a follower of Jesus, and the very thing that I'm saying to you makes you feel a bit uncomfortable. Friend, that's not my intention or my design in and of myself, but I'm telling you, that is what Jesus is and who he is and what he does. He's either Lord or he's not. He's either king or he's not. He's alive or he's not. It can't be one way or the other. And you can't stay in the middle because to stay in the middle is in effect to already decide. So he's ultimate. He's unavoidable third. He's on a mission. I love this. It says, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world into the world. This word world is really important. Many of us will know it from John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. What's interesting is that John uses the word world in lots of different ways to mean similar but not exactly the same thing. 
In this context, it doesn't mean the exact same thing as it does in John 3.16. You might think, well, the word world means created order, like earth and universe, sky and sea, but John is talking about way more than creation. He's saying here not only that Jesus came to the earth, he's saying this, that Jesus came to the brokenness of our culture and of our environment. He means the world in terms of our human existence, the highs and the lows of what it means to live in the world that we live in. So you can think of the word world like the word, word system. If I were talking about a computer system, that would be one way to use the word. Like my computer system is broken, very limited meaning of the word system. But if I say something like this, the system is broken. That's how John uses the word world. He means a broader category, something more significant and deeper in terms of its impact. This is fresh on my mind because of what I did last weekend in terms of just visiting these various locations within the civil rights movement, conversations with our African-American brothers and sisters. Jim Crow laws are a great example of a system that is and was broken. But you need to know that Jim Crow laws were not the only problem as it related to racism in the United States in the 19th and 20th century. Jim Crow laws were developed and passed into law because of something underneath them. There was a brokenness in the culture, and the Jim Crow laws were just the expression of what was already true about the brokenness of our culture. Or if you just were kind of sick to your stomach as you watched news over the weekend, Politics are always just the example or the evidence of what's really going on underneath the surface within our country. The idea is this, that Jesus comes into the mess that is our culture. He comes into the world. It's not a, a neutral word it's the idea of our brokenness. It's a system that is in rebellion against God. It's when, you, when your heart aches over what you hear or what you see or what's within inside of you. It's all of what it means to be in a realm that's in rebellion against God. And the beautiful thing is that all of that mess connected to our humanity, that Jesus comes into that mess. He doesn't stay distant from that mess. He goes into that mess. So when John says he is the true light who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, he doesn't mean just coming to earth. He doesn't mean just coming to Bethlehem. He doesn't mean just coming to Israel. He means coming into the mess that is humanity. What's more, he becomes a human. He not only comes into the mess, he becomes part of the mess. So here is the Savior who doesn't stay aloof. He doesn't stay removed. No, no, no. Jesus comes. Jesus weeps. Jesus groans. Jesus speaks. Jesus rebukes. Jesus heals. Jesus weeps. And Jesus dies. So just take note of this posture. If you're a follower of Jesus, can you just rejoice with me for a moment that Jesus rescued you from your mess? To realize that Jesus came into the middle of your mess. And if you're here today and you say, I've got a mess, I'm a hot mess. Well, welcome to a Savior who died for hot messes.
Doesn't matter how far you've gone, how long it's been, how deep it is. Jesus came into the world. He came into that mess. He stared death in the face, gave himself, and then rose again from the dead in order to deliver us from the mess of our own making. And see, if you're here today and not yet a follower of Jesus, that's essentially what the gospel is. It means that Jesus redeems us from the mess of our own lives. When we come to realize that the mess is not just on the outside, it's actually on the inside. So this is the posture of Jesus. He's ultimate, he is the true light. He's unavoidable, he shines the light on everyone. You have to decide who he is. And he goes into the world, he enters the mess. That's who Jesus is. Secondly, take note of the problem of the world. So there's a second series of truths that we find in verses 11 through 12. John wants us to see the tragic contrast between who Jesus is and what Jesus does and how he's treated. So here's what happens. Verse 10, he was in the world, the world, I think in this case he's using the word world to refer to the created world. The created world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. Key word is the word know. What we find here is that the problem of the world is that people ignored the creator. They ignored the creator. Even though he lives in the midst of the mess of our humanity, even though Jesus is the creator of the world, even though everything in life, because he's the creator, owes its allegiance to Jesus, yet the world, it says, does not know him. Now, John is saying something here that's important. He's saying more than just that the world didn't know who he was, like they didn't recognize him. The NIV renders the word know as recognize. It's not a wrong translation, but I don't think it's weighty enough because if I don't recognize you, there's not a a moral culpability connected to that like I think John intends. They didn't know him, but they should have. That's the point. Because the word know has tones of intimacy and deep relationship. Jesus said this about his sheep in John 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. In another passage in John 17, Jesus says this, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So to know who Jesus is is more than just to know facts about him. To know Jesus is more than you just know that he died or that the Bible talks about him. In fact, that's where some of you are making a a real tragic mistake. You think that you know information about Jesus, therefore makes you in a relationship with Jesus. But the idea is that they not only knew or did not know who he was, but they failed to recognize his place as the son of God. They they heard his teaching and dismissed it. They saw what he did and found other ways to explain it. It's interesting, in John chapter eight, Jesus gets into an argument with the Pharisees about his relationship with the Father. It gets a little heated. Here's what happened. John 8, 53 Pharisees, the most religious people in the day, said this, are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? 
Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. Here's where it gets hot. But Jesus said to them, but you do not know him. He just told the most religious, the most spiritual, the most godly people in the world, you don't know who God is. And then he says, but I know him. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Can imagine some of the disciples were like, okay, let's, let's go. That's, that's it. That's it. <laughs> All done. All done. Mic drop. We're out. Deuces. We're gone. See ya. We're out. No. What happens? He says, if I were to say to you that I do not know him, I would be a liar to you, but I do know him, and I keep his word your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. Had you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, here it comes, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. So they refused to know that he was the son of God. Despite what he said, despite what he did, they dismissed him, and they just treated him as if he was just another prophet. You see, sometimes some of the most spiritual people in the world can miss what should be right in front of them. This is one of the dangers, by the way, if you're here and you're a teenager or a young child being raised in a Christian home, or if you're a person who you come to church regularly, you can become so familiar with the truths about Jesus that you miss what a relationship with Jesus is really like. You could, you could come to Christianity because of things that you wanted, not because of a savior who you need to know. There's others who simply dismiss Jesus' claims over their lives, fill their lives with other things instead of him. They're thankful for the good things that they have, but they don't thank Jesus. They are happy, but they don't see Jesus as the fountainhead of all blessings. They, they take his name in vain as if he isn't real. They know better, but they don't want to know him. So they ignored him as creator Here's the second thing in verse 11. Not only did they ignore him, they then rejected him. It says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So we find here now that they reject him as savior. Not only do they ignore him as creator, but they now reject him as the savior. And what John aims to do here is to sort of amp up the argument. In, in verse 11, he talks about the long-promised Messiah is rejected by the very people who should have known better. Jesus comes not only to the world that he had made, he comes to his own people. The, the, the text literally means to his own domain, to his own home, to his own things. John clarifies his own people. And the point is this, that the people who should have been most likely to embrace his teaching and ministry are the very people who ended up killing him. The people who should have been looking for the Messiah were the ones who not only crucified their king, they missed the very Son of God. So the tragedy of the death of Jesus is not just the killing of the Son of God, but it is that the very people of God were the ones who did it. 
You know, don't you, you can find all sorts of really compelling reasons why you ought to reject Jesus. The world is full of those ideas. Tragically, some of the most religious people are the ones who have the hardest time receiving Jesus. They refuse to believe that they're sinners. Maybe you're here today and you, you know you're a sinner, but you're not a sinner as big as other people. You know that, that, that Jesus is a, is a good teacher and a good prophet, but you're not ready to say he's the exclusive way, the truth, and the life. Or maybe it is you have little areas of your world and you're like, look, I, I believe in Jesus, but Jesus can't handle this. He can't handle my addiction. He can't handle my past. He can't handle my pain, my sorrow, my depression. He can't handle my difficulties. And the reality is, is Jesus specializes in entering into the mess of our lives. The problem with the world was its posture of ignoring Jesus or outright rejecting him. So what John does here is offer us a caution. That's why I'm not covering verse 12. We'll get to verse 12 next week. If you want to hear all of the good news, next week's all good news, so come back. So it could be a very happy Sunday. So, but to, Listen to it. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of man, nor of the, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of, you gotta say it this way, but of God, right? That's an awesome text. You gotta come back next week because that'll be full of lots of hope-filled statements. And this week there's hope. But there's also a really sad reality. And that is that there's some of you hearing this message, nothing that I'm saying to you is new, and yet you still remain in an undecided position. You still think you can kind of play the game of I'm in church, kind of looking this way, but the reality is I kind of like this thing, and so I use Jesus to my satisfaction, and then I kind of go on the other side, and you need to know, friend, that is not a safe position. Because to be in that position is to decide that Jesus is not who he really claimed to be. Because when Jesus comes, he takes over. It's either Jesus all or Jesus none. So a couple implications of this text. As it relates to the posture of Jesus and the problem in the world, three things. The first one is this, is that if you're a follower of Jesus, you should rejoice that Jesus enters our mess. In Jesus, God enters our mess. We should be eternally grateful that Jesus came into a broken world, took on the limitations of our ruined humanity, suffered a death that he didn't deserve. Jesus went the distance for every single person who comes to him. So if you were to say, I'm a follower of Jesus, every single one of us has a story where Jesus stormed the mess of our lives and redeemed us out of our own problems, our own prisons, our own self-destruction. The story of grace is the story of how Jesus can enter the mess of our lives and redeem us. So if you're here today with an enormous mess in your life, I want you to know Jesus can still help you to deliver you out of your mess. Secondly, rejecting Jesus can take many forms. And friends, it should make us tremble of all the ways that Jesus can be rejected. The devil is constantly scheming. The world is constantly creating and offering new alternatives for our allegiance. Jesus can be ignored, he can be dismissed, he can be rejected, and you will find in John's gospel and the other gospels plenty of examples of people who walked away from Jesus because they wanted money or power or 
their immorality, or their fear of man. Some people come to Jesus because they want Jesus to give them what they want, and they find out that when Jesus comes, he takes everything, and that's so glorious. But the problem is that some people didn't like what Jesus did. Some didn't like what he said. Some were religious. Some were pagans. Some wanted him just in ways that were convenient. And the fact of the matter is there's a myriad of ways that Jesus can be rejected, and we ought to tremble at that. That ought to move some of us to pray for people around us who have still rejected Jesus. I prayed between services for a woman whose 96-year-old dad still is rejecting Jesus, and she prayed, give me, God, the courage to share Christ with him, even though I know he's not going to want to hear it. But the burden for her father is compelling her to press into this rejection of Jesus that's a part of her dad's story. Here's the third thing. Every single person must decide who Jesus is. The aim of John's gospel, friend, is for you to believe. Every story, every line of teaching, every miracle is written so that you would cross over from not being a believer to being a believer. But if you think that you can still remain in a position of not deciding, I caution you, that is deciding. And the invitation would be, come to Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, it means you've already made that decision. And so that then goes with you all week long. So when you wake up in the morning and you feel weary about what's in front of you, remind your heart, I decided to follow Jesus. When your heart feels overwhelmed with the difficulties of life, you remind your heart, I've decided to follow Jesus. When temptation comes your way and something says, hey, look at this on this screen, or come this way and say this thing, or, or act in a particular manner that you know, it's just on the edges, remind yourself, I have decided to follow Jesus. I'm not turning back. I am not turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. That's how the hymn writer said it. I'm going to follow Jesus. Why? Because Jesus entered the mess of my life. He came and redeemed me and restored me and renewed me. He pulled me out of the mess of my own self-made prison. He, he shone his light, and I've decided to follow Jesus. And so for the rest of my life, here it is. I am going to follow Jesus. As I stare death in the face, I'm going to follow Jesus. As I deal with difficulty, deal with difficulty I'm going to follow Jesus. Because at the end of the day, when the Son of God comes into the world, the calling from John's gospel is simple. Don't reject him. Believe in him. And follow him. Decide. Decide to follow Jesus. Father, we pray that you, by the Holy Spirit now, through the authority that comes through Christ, would strengthen our hearts to believe in you and follow you, Jesus. Lord, make us the kind of people whose hearts turn toward you, not away, even now. Lord, turn our hearts toward you. Help us to in faith, say, Jesus, I'm, I, I, I choose to follow you. And Lord, I pray for some today who need to cross the line to become followers of Jesus. Would you let the sort of heavy weight of this text 
fall on their souls and move them to belief. So Lord, help us.